And when you have like a crisis of faith institutions at the degree that you do right now, it's terrible. And I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an institutionalist, but I certainly recognize that declining faith in institutions is a really dangerous thing for democracy, which is terrifying. Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, let's welcome back young Joe Garvey to research and fact check us today. Joe, welcome back to the show. How's it going? You ready for your big stand-up tonight? No, I'm actually, I'm ill-prepared for tonight. Well, uh, Ricky, are you coming? That's a great advertisement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Ricky, are you going to make it? I might be able to. We have to see. We'll see. What time is it again? It's at eight o'clock. Plug, plug your plug your location and eight o'clock Stone Street Coffee, Nolita, Broom Street, two blocks from Robbie's apartment. Wow, well, we're okay. doxing ourselves here. <laughs> I'm not worried about being doxed. Nobody cares about me. Uh, and I'm good luck trying to find me. I actually once had a, a court process server try to serve me for a lawsuit in Nashville, and mm. the in the deposition. They were like, where do you live exactly? And it was like basically my life, some version of my lifestyle now where I don't like, I almost am like on the run. You'd think I'm on the run based on like how much I travel and how little I sleep at my place. And so I had to spend the whole part of this opening deposition to be like, no, look, I wasn't even trying to evade you. I just have a very like flighty lifestyle. Uh, And I I actually made the opposing lawyer laugh when I talked about it. (laughs) I just wrote an article for the post about like stupid pepper spray laws here and how hard it is to get it. And then I showed up at my desk the following day and there were a lot of pepper spray packages that had been sent to my desk at the post. So oh my God. now I have a lifetime supply. If anyone in New York is having a hard time acquiring some, I'm your girl. You should you should test out to see how far you could take that to be like, you know what? I would really like a Rolex to see if people just start yeah, sending. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> I, I didn't <laughs> ask for them for the record because you're not supposed to do that as a journalist. That's for sure. But, um, well, you know, some nice concerned people who who are worried about the safety of women in this city and rightfully so, because it's crazy. I see. Okay. Well, I want to make one announcement on the front end here, which is we're we're not going to cover this student loan hearing that happened in front of the Supreme Court, the oral arguments, because we've covered it so extensively on the show. But I want to point our audience to previous reporting. In our show notes, we're going to link to the prior episodes we've done on the student loan crisis and on this Supreme Court doctrine called the Major Questions Doctrine, which was actually a really important part of this case. And actually, in listening back to the oral arguments, I felt really good that we've prepared you to be able to evaluate what happened because it talked all about this like opaque Missouri student loan financing group that we talked about on the show. They talked about the major questions doctrine. They talked about standing. These are all things we've prepared you for. We'll link to all these things in the show notes. We'll also link a helpful explainer from SCOTUS blog, which goes through basically all the contentious points that happened in front of the Supreme Court. The bottom line People reading the tea leaves seem to believe that the Supreme Court will find a reason to strike down Biden's student re- uh, relief, uh, loan relief package, uh, his plan. So that's what people seem to think. And I share their their prediction. So with that, we've got a couple of announcements. Uh, Imbroglio is our education newsletter, I-M-B-R-O-G-L-I-O. Uh, we had a newsletter earlier. We had a 
a article earlier this week about this quote unquote toxic productivity and I defend some version of productivity. So you could read that tomorrow. We'll do a rundown of all the great education stories you may have missed from this week. You could subscribe there for free. We also have Jason Flom, record executive, criminal justice reform advocate is on uh, the hardest step talking about like how we should be thinking about criminal justice reform. Jason's a really interesting guy who's built like a bipartisan coalition for reform. And Ricky, the voicemail. What is our voicemail number? 321-200-0570. We'll send in your voicemails. Let's hear them. And once again, Trendy Tuesday, we want to hear from you about what trends we should be hitting on a future Tuesday. So send them in and we may use your voicemail in the segment to tee up the trend. Well, first, let's talk about the COVID lab leak theory. New report tonight on the origins of COVID-19. New intelligence that's likely to rekindle the unsettled debate over the origins of COVID. The Department of Energy has concluded COVID-19 likely came from a lab leak in China. The FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. So quickly it became a sacrilege to say, to be even be open to the alternative in any kind of public setting. Why did you dismiss the lab leak theory as credible? Deadly, horrific, generational changing pandemic. Yeah. How did it start? Exactly. This is the question they're trying to answer. According to a classified intelligence report sent to the White House and certain members of Congress, the previously agnostic U.S. Department of Energy now concludes with, quote, low confidence that COVID most likely originated from a Chinese lab. The Department of Energy, which oversees a network of scientific labs across the country, now joins the FBI in supporting the lab leak theory. Also making headlines this week is a Fox News interview with FBI Director Christopher Wray, where he provided the first public confirmation of the Bureau's classified judgment. Now, on the flip side, four other U.S. intelligence agencies, as well as the National Intelligence Council, believe COVID originated from natural transmission from an infected animal. But they also have limited confidence in the accuracy of those findings. Now, it's unclear what exactly convinced the Department of Energy to change its assessment, given the classified nature of the report. But the Biden administration insists that they have directed all 18 intelligence agencies to get to the bottom of COVID's origins. Now, to date, more than 1 million Americans have died from COVID, and nearly 7 million people have died globally. All right. Well, that sets it up. Ricky, you and I were kind of messaging back and forth before this segment. And, and I, th the way we're going to handle this is we're going to talk about, in broad strokes, what we know with the science. But even though you're wearing your Wuhan Institute of Virology shirt today, I am we are not going to get into... We're not going to try to get too technical on the science. We're yeah. going to try to point you in the direction of people making competing claims and, and you can come to your own conclusions. But we will talk about the best arguments for and against each theory. But before we do any of that, I want to talk about why we, we think this is an important story and how we at Lost Debate have covered it. Because I think it gets to why we do this podcast and why we have the Lost Debate as a company. So we've covered the lab leak theory in some form a few times on this show. And I want to point our audience in the direction of one year ago in March of 2022, we did a segment about gain-of-function research and on some reporting from Vanity Fair that we found persuasive. Let's go to this clip, and then I'll talk about the significance of it. 
For me, the big revelation was after looking at a lot of this material and even, you know, over the course of our conversations offline about this, I was expecting to come in here and be like, no, this is overblown, et cetera. But there's a lot of reporting that has kind of flipped me on this. One article in particular, this is Catherine Eban in June of 2021 in Vanity Fair. Mm -hmm. And she essentially goes through, and this is a long article, but essentially goes through just piece by piece why this theory is very plausible. And she flipped me from thinking it was possible to thinking it is likely that this came from the Wuhan uh, lab. Uh, and one, one just of many pieces of evidence is that there are three places in the world that do this kind of research, this gain-of-function research, and one of them is in Wuhan. Yeah. And, and that's not the only coincidence. You got to read the article. To me, there's just so many flashing lights and there's so many implications for the media, for our public health establishment. And I've become way more sympathetic of people who've been making larger claims about this. Well, Ricky, the reason why I play this is not to like crow and be like, hey, we were right or we were wrong. I personally have evolved on this and gone back and forth over the years based on my reading of the evidence. And we as a show get things wrong and right all the time. The reason why I play this is because it gets to the heart of why we do this podcast and why we have Lost Debate as a company. And sometimes I, I, I think about like maybe this show should be called The Lost Dialogue because we don't really debate that much. But the promise of this, which I think is playing out in this lab leak theory uh, story, is that you and I often read different things. We have different friends with different ideologies. We often spend time with different networks. Like you go on Fox News and you work at the New York Post and I'm on Midas and do partnerships with Crooked Media and come from the Democratic Party that through talking to each other, sometimes we could learn something about stories that aren't being covered fully on either side or on any side. And I think this is a good example of that. I think if it hadn't been for the show and the privilege of doing it, I think I probably would have been wrong much longer. So thank you, Ricky. So that's just, I just want to start with that point about that's why we do this show. I've opened your eyes to the the vicious conspiracy theories. <laughs> yeah. But, and to be clear, I don't think it's, it's, it, I don't think it's definitive still. I, I still am where no, I, I was know. back I'm, then. I'm kidding. Yeah. But um, no, I, I actually, this is as my cat is causing chaos behind me. Sorry. My cat has zoomies. So It'll add character if you can hear her in the background. But um, yeah, this is one of like the early moments that I that I remember very well on the show. And I really appreciated the open mindedness that you approached that segment with. Um, and when I look back now, now that we we've kind of slowly normalized the potential that this could very well be the case of how this pandemic started, but at the very least was never not an out of the question sort of situation. I mean, there's literally a respiratory virus Institute lab right across the street from the wet market. And then there was the bat soup. Like it, it was never, it should never have sounded impossible. And yet there was this insistence that it was, and I'm looking back over this coverage now and it's, it's really startling to me to hear the certainty with which mainstream media, with which members of like the scientific establishment asserted that this was 100% not the case or that this was a, a fringe conspiracy theory. Um, like, let's rewind back to April of 2020. This is Drew Griffin on CNN. And then there's this theory, widely debunked. This paper from two Chinese researchers that says it is plausible that the virus leaked accidentally from one of two labs near the Wuhan seafood market. After an uproar and heated denials by the Chinese government, one of the authors told the Wall Street Journal the paper had been withdrawn because it was not supported by direct proofs. 
Experienced virus hunters Dashik and Cunningham say the theory is bunk. People don't keep bats in captivity. Complete baloney. We don't need to invoke conspiracy theories. It's just basic biology. And mind you, Peter Daszak there is the head of EcoHealth Alliance who was doing research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So he seems to be a prolific source. guy. He's yeah. really um, a, <laughs> He's a main everywhere. character here. And one more clip before we get off this note, but Fareed Zakaria of CNN as well. Like just the attitude about this is not a possible theory or this is fringe or this is can be dismissed wholesale. Tom Cotton, one of Donald Trump's staunchest allies in the Senate, suggested that the virus might have originated in a high security biochemical lab in China. In the 1980s, I remember when the far left trafficked in rumors about HIV having been invented in CIA labs. The far right has now found its own virus conspiracy theory. But we closed President Trump, for his part, fuels the, the fears by emphasizing how the disease came from China. So one last thing on this note, I just want to rewind to what Tom Cotton said that got him the headline in The New York Times. Senator Tom Cotton repeats fringe theory of coronavirus origins, um, which they call a conspiracy theory in The New York Times. This is Tom Cotton's quote is we don't have evidence that this disease originated there in the lab. But because of China's duplicity and dishonesty from the beginning, we need to at least ask the question to see what the evidence says. And China right now is not giving evidence not to that question at all. Right. That so is not it, a crazy <laughs> like this came out of a lab and we know it for sure. This was let's just have some humility here and listen to the potentials. And man, has that quote been vindicated since? Well, yeah. And, and Joe, give us the rundown of some additional pieces here where the press and, and social media companies reacted poorly to this debate that was playing out in the early days of the pandemic. Yeah, fact-checking site PolitiFact archived a Pants on Fire rating on a previous fact-check. The Washington Post corrected a story on Republican Senator Tom Cotton's efforts to press China for evidence of the origins of COVID, acknowledging that there is no determination about the virus's origins. The Guardian covered the issue through the lens of Trump's conspiracy theories, as did Vox, who published headlines such as in some right-wing news outlets and on social media, a dangerous conspiracy theory about the origin of health of the health crisis won't die. The list goes on and on. Ooh. And that's not to mention the the social media dangerous. response. Of, Twitter was labeling tweets about the lab leak theory as disputed or misleading. Facebook was even taking down posts that claimed it to be true. It's an extensive list. This is distressing to me because I, you know, longtime listeners will know I'm, I'm a bit of an institutionalist, which means I want to believe in institutions. I want to reform them rather than tear them down. And I still believe that. Like, I still believe we need public health agencies. I still believe we need a healthy media environment. But it makes it really hard for people like me who want to defend institutions when we had such a full scale failure on an yeah. issue as important as this across so many domains. But before we get to why that's the case, Ricky, I know we didn't want to spend too much time on this, but let's let's lay out the case for natural origin and then for the lab leak theory. And once again, to the audience, there are better places where you can hear this case. In particular, Alina Chan and Matt Ridley, who wrote a great book on this, just recently appeared on Sam Harris's Making Sense podcast. They go on for hours on that podcast, and they also wrote an incredible book about this. We also have previously talked about the Vanity Fair reporting on this and others. There's plenty. We'll link to them yeah. all in the show notes about just the sheer science of this. But let me start, Ricky, with the case for natural origin. This is not the case I believe is the most persuasive to me, but I think it's important to talk about it. 
So uh, Joe uh, mentioned that the Office of the direct Director of National Intelligence and four other intelligence agencies still believe with low confidence that the initial COVID-19 infection was, quote, most likely caused by natural exposure to an animal infected with it or a close progenitor virus, end quote. So they still believe that. So to start off, we're reacting to the news that the FBI and Department of Energy believe one thing. There are other intelligence agencies that believe the rest, uh, there was a, a peer-reviewed study from July 2022. I think we may have talked about it on this podcast. I can't remember. Uh, in the Journal of Science, which is a super reputable journal that determined that the market in Wuhan, not the lab, was the most likely origin of the virus. And the studies cited the virus's likely genetic mutations and the presence of infected people and virus-positive samples near the market, which is something we'll come back to because I think one of the strongest cases that Chan and, and Ridley talked about was like why that data was the way it was. So we'll put a, put a pin in that. Um, there are molecular markers that I won't go into, but we'll, we'll link in the show notes. Forbes has a good uh, write-up of that. And there's all this sort of speculation around, all right, there was this deviation at the market where there were two different strains of the virus, both originating from the market. And that was part of what the science paper discusses. So I, there's more than that, but I just, I just want to say um, that is like that plus I think the fact that major institutions have lined up behind the theory, like we'll mm -hmm. talk about the World Health Organization, which was initially pretty strident in favor of this. Those are like some of the strongest reasons for believing the market theory. If you look historically also, the biggest reason to believe it was just the lockstep media scientific establishment. This is what it is and everything else is a fringe theory. But the thing that's confusing to me is like how we so like positively accepted the theory that came out of China. But anyways, the the, the right. alternative to that, um, like I'm not sure how how that made sense in anyone's mind of like, yes, 100%, we can know exactly where this came from. And if you were more of a skeptic, you might have looked at the fact that the investigations that we were doing were very, very flawed. Um, the WHO sent uh, representatives of a variety of countries. We sent Peter Daszak as our representative who was involved in research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology um, through his EcoHealth Alliance group. Um, we also... It's a coronavirus research lab that is directly across the street from the wet market that supposedly this um, came from. So that was a red flag for a lot of people. The Wuhan Institute of Virology. Hmm. Um, the, the closest sample of like relatives of the virus were collected a thousand miles away. We never were able to find an, an animal or um, like the, the jump from an animal to humans at any point in time. Um, there have been similar pathogen leaks historically, including a SARS virus in 2004 that leaked from a Beijing lab and killed a few people. There have been biosafety concerns flagged about this specific lab, including inspectors that flagged improper storage of samples um, and management failings. And then there's also, I, I'm not going to delve too deep into this because I don't really, I'm not a scientific expert, but there's something about the cleavage site in the um, virus itself that has flagged for some people that potentially it looks like it could have been tinkered with um, scientifically. But then, I mean, uh, yeah, I was, it just never seemed 
like you could just positively say that there was no right. way that it came from the lab. And so that's why like looking back, it's, it's really disturbing to me that something that was, of course, there's always bad faith people who go too far with things, but it, there's just something so disturbing about all the common sense evidence here and how we shut our mind off to it. Um, and if you ask the public, 44% think it comes from the net, a lab and 26% think it's a, of natural origins. And it's important to note that even though institutions have been changing here, these numbers have held steady since last year, like June of 2021, actually more than last year. So these are people's minds aren't really ch changing. And there was a huge amount, even before all these institutions were coming out and saying, oh, maybe this is true. There was a huge plurality of Americans who looked at the evidence in front of them, who analyzed it themselves and said, something's up with this. And when you have like a crisis of faith of institutions at the degree that you do right now, I mean, it's it's terrible. Right. And I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an institutionalist, but I certainly recognize that declining faith in institutions is a really dangerous thing for democracy. And right now, only 29% of Americans say they have a great deal in confidence in medical scientists to act in the interest of the public, which right. is terrifying. Well, it, the, the, the problem here, and I, I have a chemistry uh, degree and even I like I'm looking at this and I'm like, I, it, it'll take me the rest of my life to figure out everything involved in this story, which is why I love books like what Ridley and Chan wrote. But that's why you need institutions. You need to trust an institution to be like, all right, I'm going to drive my car across this bridge. I can't independently test it myself. You know, I'm not an engineer. Even if I was, I wouldn't have the time or the resources to test to see that if that bridge is safe. So I have to trust an institution to do it for me. And that's the case of things like public health. It's like, we have to trust yeah. these institutions to be able to tell us this is safe, that isn't safe. This is this is what we could determine from the origin, et cetera. And just to, to layer in some pieces here, what you're talking about, the, the flaws of the initial investigation, um, Chan and Ridley basically liken it to, you know, this sort of old adage of like, if you lose your keys and you ask somebody, why are you looking under the street light? They'd be like, it's because this is, you know, this is where the light is, not necessarily where the key is. That's what they did uh, mm -hmm. with the market is that they were, they were focusing the investigation on people with ties to the market. And so what Ridley and Chan argue is that that tainted the data set. So then later on, people who are pro- uh, pro-market theory were like, oh, like so much of the initial cases for were around the market, but that's because they were testing only people with ties to the market. Um, so that was that to me was the most persuasive part of this. You also talked yeah. about the biosafety issues here. Let's go to Alina Chan, who is the co-author of that book, just talking about the issue with biosafety because I think there was a conflation with the highest level of security at this lab with with the with the level of security that was used. Uh, potentially in some of the coronavirus type work. So when the outbreak was first detected, lots of people were just thinking about the top biosafety lab in Wuhan, so that their BSL-4, the maximum biosafety level. But the truth was, all of their research on these bad coronaviruses, including the SARS-like viruses, had been done at lower levels at BSL-2 hmm. and BSL-3. So they worked with live viruses even at BSL-2. And at this level, you cannot be protected from an infectious airborne SARS-like virus. And there's no requirement, even if people are sick, even if they fall sick, they don't have to report it. They don't have to quarantine. So there would have been no record of someone being infected in the lab by such a virus. 
So one more thing, Ricky, I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on and then we can move on, I think, from these theories and, and talk about the politics and the lessons learned of this. But according to Chan and Ridley, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, your alma mater, uh, had a complete <laughs> database of all the viruses that they'd collected from the beginning um, from the beginning of the 2000s. Uh, and this included the name of the viruses, their sequences, the locations, and other features. But that database went offline in September 12, 2019, and it came back online briefly in early 2020, only internally, and you needed a password to access it. And Ridley and others, there's like a group of people who've been calling on uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology to open up that database, because what Ridley says is, if that database is open up and there's no cousins of this virus in there, then you could be like, all right, well, like that's a mark in favor of the, the market theory. But the fact that they're not sharing that information is highly suspicious. Yeah. Not to mention that like in the very early days of the pandemic, they were censoring critics and like wiping down the entire city with bleach essentially to eradicate any evidence of where this might've come from. I've to the market theory, um, like to its credit, I've been convinced by some of these studies that it seems like that was certainly like a super spreader event is what mm -hmm. it looks like to me. Like it does seem like there are a lot of clusters of cases around the market, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there wasn't somebody who worked at the lab or had a relative who did that then worked at the market. And like, I've just never seen any evidence that really proves to me, especially considering that there's no animal that we've ever been able to recover that has had this virus um, in their system. Like, I just, I've yet to see this moment of like, oh yeah, definitely what China's telling us is true. Mm -hmm. And yet it's just, it's, I, I said it before, but like, it just boggles my mind that we could think, oh yeah, a hundred, at first we were talking about like bat soup and then that changed. And then it was like something about the market <laughs> separate. Like we just took so much at face value from a country that clearly has a vested interest in not being um, tied to the origins of this pandemic and clearly did everything they could to obscure the origins. And then you have all these backend like FOIA emails from Dr. Fauci, where you can see in the beginning, in the early days, some of his advisors are saying like, there's a 70, 30 shot that this could be a lab leak. And then all of a sudden there's like a phase shift and he's in, con in contact with scientists who end up writing a report in nature that calls it a conspiracy theory. And he's in contact with Peter Daszak, who has mm -hmm. gotten NIH funding for EcoHealth Alliance, which is a group that has collaborated with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And so it's just the corruption and the connections and this vested interest in not disrupting the quote international harmony according yes. to their internal emails like it's just it's so it's so bad and honestly I know a lot of people aren't fans of Rand Paul but I am and credit to him for holding Fauci accountable on this one because he was kind of like a party of one just going at him over and over and over and I don't know like I'm just We've, yeah and we, we talked about that actually yeah. on this podcast, right? I think that might've been our foray into this debate where, you know, me, generally not a big fan of Rand Paul, defended him there. And even on, I went on a liberal outlet at the time and said, look, like Fauci's not being completely honest. He may be relying on a technical definition of gain of function at the yeah. time, but he was being too cute by half. And I think I used that language there. And I got attacks from people for, for saying that. <laughs> but Ricky, let's, let's talk about the most important question here which is why there was a bias against this story in certain corners of America. And let's start with in the virology community. 
Matthew Iglesias has a really good piece, we'll link to it, where he basically talks about how this loud chorus on virology Twitter were largely people with sub subject matter knowledge on this issue. So they were like relied upon as trustworthy, but they're interested parties. They didn't want more regulatory scrutiny. They're also, um, Matt Ridley also added, I think, a, even more to this, which is, um, let's go to this clip actually and hear what he had to say about this because basically talking about how like, what, what was it that the scientists had to, to lose by this theory? It is a case that, uh, that Western virology feels worried that its entire research program, indeed the whole of biotechnology, might lose its funding, might lose its social license if a major accident is revealed to have happened as a result of work in a, a laboratory. And, you know, I share that concern in a sense. I'm pro-biotech, mm. I'm pro-vaccine, I'm pro-genetic engineering of crops and in medicine as well. And it would be a terrible pity if as a result of this, the world said, right, we don't want to do, have anything to do with biotechnology ever again. Yeah. It's a disaster. But I think truth is more important than consequence. And, and actually, you know, science would be better off saying, no, let's find out. And if this did go wrong, let's learn lessons and make sure we don't do it again. Yeah. So what we're referring to here in this clip is essentially like the conversation around gain of function research and the arguments, which are either that like gain of function is making a disease more habitable in like a human body, essentially, and trying to understand how diseases work and and making them potentially more contagious or worse in a lab setting so that we can fight an, a similar mutation that might occur in a natural setting. And so we would be better prepared to fight pathogens in the future. And the people who are in favor of that think that that is medically a good thing. We're future oriented. And as long as we can do so safely and keep it contained, that that is the case, I'm sure. But then the people against it are concerned that this could potentially cause a pandemic, which, you know, we, there have been uh, pathogens that have jumped from labs in the past, and that wouldn't be unheard of. And so I think like the, the major question here is, um, you know, the Eco Health Alliance does have connections to the NIH. And so when we, if we as like Western scientists or as the American people want to invest in gain of function research, I think we have a very vested interest in investing in it in our own mm -hmm. labs that we have like transparent oversight over. And this whole situation was just made it glaringly obvious that like the World Health Organization, which is supposed to be the watchdog for everyone, like China is putting a t is responsible for a ton of their funding. They did an investigation with like Chinese officials babysitting them. And we can't rely on these international bo regulatory bodies to keep everyone accountable because of course there's competing interests. Of course there's financial interests. And I think if there's anything to be learned, it's the American people, if their taxpayer dollars are going towards any research, if their taxpayer dollars are funding any medical institution, we have such a strong interest in making sure that everything that we do, we do under our own control and oversight. But like we do have the capability to do this ourselves. And I don't think the Chinese government has proven themselves even slightly responsible or an even slightly acceptable partner in this sort of high stakes research. Yeah. And, and there's this big debate that we need to have about the costs and benefits of this research. So in that same Iglesias piece that I 
that I mentioned, he talks about how lab leaks aren't that rare and that there was a 2014 uh, uh, write-up in the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation that cited, quote, at least 80 cases and three deaths that, the, that were a result of three separate escapes of the smallpox virus from two different accredited smallpox laboratories. So this is about just lab leaks generally, not necessarily gain-of-function research. But then Iglesias goes on to talk about the costs and benefits and says, quote, while the downside of the virus lab accidents is almost unbounded, the benefits of this kind of research seem pretty minimal. It would be really good to have more scientific research into virus countermeasures, but the big stumbling blocks are the rules around clinical trials. We don't need to do dual-use work cooking up deadly pathogens in order to spread vac speed vaccine research. We need to prioritize speedier vaccine research. End quote. And this gets to, Ricky, the rest of this question around what happened here in terms of bias. So you have the virology community. It's related to why the media and certain politicians uh, were really defensive and social media companies were really defensive about this because there are certain people who are more deferential to institutions like myself. So if the virologists are saying one thing and the World Health Organization is saying one thing that they tend to trust that opinion. I think the other part of this is that there was this, there's this sense that uh, people that you don't like and that you disagree with on other things and that maybe you've seen be casual with the truth in your opinion uh, on other things, and they start saying, hey, this is coming from a lab leak, you you shut your brain off, and mm -hmm. you're unwilling to hear anything that they say. And I think that that was the biggest part of this, is that when you had people like Trump, who was, who was a little late to this story, like in February, he was defending China, and according to Pompeo's memoir, directed him not to criticize China, but then quickly became as hawkish as they come. Once people like Trump were saying this, I think a lot of liberals could not in any way listen to what he had to say on this or anybody who probably was speaking more coherently on the issue. Yeah, there. this is one of the big things that I'm talking about in my book with Greg Lukianoff is um, in like the coddling of the American mind, there were three great untruths that they talked about that are kind of cognitive distortions that are messing up our dialogue. And we added a fourth one, which is um, for this book, which is bad people have bad ideas, which is mm. absolutely not true. And we, if we want to have like a healthy dialogue ever in the future going forward, you have to be able to like parse out the person from the idea and actually address the idea not go ad hominem or dismiss them because of the source. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's an entire chapter on this in our book. So it's something I feel very strongly about. And I'm glad that we are keeping on top of this developing story. And regardless of where the pandemic's origins lie, I think this is a story of like an epistemic crisis that we need to address and fix moving forward. Right. And that's a question that we should really be focused on right now. What? The World Health Organization, it appears, there's reporting in Politico, February 2023, that uh, the investigation has stalled. You know, when the Australian government early on called for an independent probe into the virus, China retaliated by imposing sanctions on Australia's exports. So we as America need to take the lead here. Because, like, the one thing that we have as a country is ostensibly, we should be independent of China. I know it's not true in practice, but we have the ability to be more independent than a lot of these other people. And, you know, obviously, like we've talked about, you know, how the NBA and Hollywood and even some of our own public health institutions are, are too comfortable with China, but we've got to wall this off 
from their pressure and really get to the bottom of this, we probably will never know for sure what happened because any evidence that's out there has probably been destroyed already if it exists. But we should do everything possible to find out the answer to this question because it's the thing that upended everybody's lives, killed so many different people uh, over the past few years and gets to the heart of the problems of this autocratic regime, right? Like when we're criticizing, why is it bad to live in an autocracy? Well, one of the reasons is because when bad things happen, you can't get answers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important story for us to tell. Let's talk about advanced placement courses and particularly what's going on with this African-American studies AP course. Joe, can you drop some facts on us, please? Yeah, sure thing. So back in August, the New York Times reported that the College Board was preparing to launch its new AP African-American studies course in about 60 high schools in the fall. Then in January, the Florida Department of Education announced that it would ban the course's curriculum, saying that it is inexplicably contrary to Florida law and significantly lacks educational value. The College Board then released a new curriculum in February, omitting much of the content that Governor DeSantis and other conservatives opposed. As quoted in the New York Times, the College Board purged the names of many black writers and scholars associated with critical race theory, the queer experience, and black feminism. It also ushered out some politically fraught topics like Black Lives Matter, from the formal curriculum, end quote. Now, the choice to remove certain subjects from the curriculum is meeting opposition too, as uh, some are accusing the College Board of succumbing to political pressure, which uh, is an allegation that the board denies outright. Let's first talk about this particular controversy, and then we'll widen out and talk about AP and the College Board writ large, like who are these people? I do think, Ricky, that there's a certain symmetry between this and the conversation around the COVID pandemic in the sense that this appears to be a rather opaque uh, institution that isn't sharing all the information about how they made this decision, because I think so much comes down to that in a lot of people's eyes. Like we were going back and forth this morning, like, well, did the college board make this decision because DeSantis pressured them or were they planning to make this decision already. Uh, it does seem like the college board is claiming that they were going to make this decision before DeSantis put pressure on them. What Do you buy that explanation? I mean, it's definitely opaque and there seems to be more communication between Florida legislators and the college board for longer than they were initially letting on. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if this was something that they'd end up doing either way, because a lot of this stuff is sort of the contentious social issues that, you know, the original version of this curriculum kind of throws a wrench in the group of people who say critical race theory isn't taught in schools and stuff like it quite literally is. Yes, it's an AP level course, which means that it's supposed to be a college level course. But like this is there was some very controversial stuff in here. Not the, I certainly not taking issue with the like actual, like historical lens, but some of this modern, um, like the modern content that they included was very, um, very controversial and kind of playing into the hands of a lot of the concerns of conservatives about what is in our education. Um, I, I mean, I, I, am sympathetic to the idea that I don't know that queer studies is necessarily something that belongs in, an African-American history course. But I, I mean, at the same time, I don't know, this is one that I'm kind of like agnostic on. Cause I, I, you can't know if this was a politically motivated um, mm -hmm. decision at the end, if it was, that's unfortunate, but 
also, right. I think Florida is within their rights to say if this is happening in public schools, that this is something that in our federalist system and in our state, we've decided against. And I think that you could separate out what you think should be in an AP course versus what you may teach in your course. And I think that's one of the things that the college board has been struggling with here and to communicate, mm -hmm. which is there's, they moved some of this stuff to optional, right? Mm -hmm. So it seems like there's... Um, there, there was a Black, Matter, Black Lives Matter reference that was moved to something that was optional within the curriculum, and it was put, like, and there also was something around Black conservatives that is optional as well. And I, I tend to think that's a good move for anything that can yeah. be controversial politically, because our okay. country cannot handle consensus on anything that has any sense of political controversy. So what I would teach, I would probably be more comfortable with a, uh, a queer. Uh, course, in, in part because I tend to believe that, you know, we've got gay people of, of every stripe. And if there's something particular to the black queer experience, well, can I, I just, would want uh, Let me just flesh that out with like some quotes from the included readings. Um, uh -oh. One one says, <laughs> we have to encourage and develop practices whereby queerness isn't a surrender to the status quo of race, class, gender, and sexuality. It means building forms of queerness that reject the given realities of the government and the market. So... Mm -hmm. Um, some yeah. other quotes that I just think like, so it's like if a you're, Marxist ideology. This is, yeah. Um, like. And this is the, the, the modern stuff that they're picking. Of course, the, like mm -hmm. the DeSantis camp is going to pick the most salacious stuff, but you know, some other quotes, I began to use the phrase in my work, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, because I wanted to have some language that would actually remind us continually of the interlocking systems of domination that define our reality. And a third one, everyday black people produce an unquantifiable, unquantifiable amount of content for these social media corporations that reproduce the white supremacist superstructures that oppress us. So right. this, this is not, this is, this is genuinely politically contentious, modern literature. You can make a decision about, you know, this is an AP course. And so I think that's why it's, it's hard to have this conversation a little bit because right. I really believe in academic freedom. And I also believe in the sanctity of like the K to 12 system and how local legislators should have control over that. Like, I do think that should be a localized issue. And then the right. AP courses are this weird in between where you're getting college credit and you're supposed to be at a college level, but it's also not a required course. So I think that that should distance legislators a little bit more. But, you know, the whole conversation around this course for me as a First Amendment person and like very much a free speech person is that we're still like we keep getting caught up in like the non-constitutional issues with some of the legislation coming out of Florida. And if you really like the thing that is clearly unconstitutional is the legislation that applied to higher education and to public mm -hmm. colleges. And right. that, I mean, a judge just ruled that some of the legislation was quote positively dystopian. And we're not looking at the like actual really legitimate first amendment violations that are, unambiguous. I don't, yeah. I don't know how the conversation just kind of went to all the, all the less, um, you got to untangle this stuff. Right. And I think this is an area that I want to spend a lot of time at lost debate over the next year or two, given our specialty in education too, given the amount of podcasts we have on education and the diversity yeah. of viewpoints that we have on education, because I do think you are absolutely right that there's gaslighting going on around critical race theory. Like I've come to this conclusion over time that when I square my own experience, when I left the classroom in 2016, with even back then, there were things that you want to call it critical race theory or not, like it was 
it is now what we're now calling critical race theory, like the stuff mm -hmm. that the critics yeah. of critical race theory say, because there's this thing where we're using, whenever liberals are accused of teaching critical race theory, they point to the very narrow legal scholarship around critical race theory, not the wider set of ideas. But back in the day, they were using critical race theory as an umbrella term as well. They only mm -hmm. abandoned it when it became unpopular. But I also think that the term is besides the point. There's a larger debate that, that is about a bunch of different things that we need to separate out and argue about one at a time. And mm -hmm. that's what I'm trying to do with this AP African-American yeah. history courses. In looking at it, there are parts of it I would have kept, parts of it I wouldn't, and then a lot I would put at the discretion of educators because I think our country simply cannot handle a one-size-fits-all solution to a lot of things. Like one example is Angela Davis was cited as a as one of the the – the, the written pieces of work. Now, I don't know fully how Angela Davis was being planned on being taught, but she's a relatively contemporary figure who had some, I think, important things to say about civil rights, but then who had some insane things to say. Like she was supportive of repressive regimes in Russia, East Germany, Czechoslovakia. She was, crit she was critical of Solzhenitsyn and other dissidents. She said when asked about Czech dis dissonance, quote, they deserve what they get, let them remain in prison, end quote. And when asked by Alan Dershowitz, who I think is a bit of a quack now, but who is asking her whether she would support Jewish refuseniks, said, quote, they are all Zionist fascists and opponents of socialism. Now, so would I want to be holding her up as a hero uh, to the average American student? No. Is that how this was necessarily taught? I'm not sure because this was a pilot program. And once again, yeah. this is not the most... This is not the most transparent of institutions. But so there are some of these people I would teach, some of them I wouldn't. My general approach, I, I wrote this in my high school essay, is I like to take controversial topics, like take Ta-Nehisi Coates, for example, who I have respect for. I disagree with him, but I respect him. And I would put his writings next to Barack Obama, who I believe actually is in the new revised uh, standards, and say, all right, Ta-Nehisi Coates versus Barack Obama versus John McWhorter, right? Like, let's look at three different ways of looking at America and yeah. debate them. I actually think that's cool. Yeah, one of the one of the things that was also pointed out was that there was a um, segment on the reparations movement that didn't include like a critical perspective. It was the sampling re sampled readings were reportedly advocacy only. Um, and like, I just I I do think that there is maybe a line where this feels like a college course, and if this was not an AP course, which I know is right in that in between, but if this was if this. If, if Florida had just said, no, we're not teaching this in our public colleges, I would be 100% like absolutely unacceptable academic freedom, no questions about it. But I do wonder, like, I, I just I can't imagine that there isn't a universe where the college board looked at this curriculum that they developed and they said, hmm, maybe we should turn away from anything that's like ultra modern or ultra like lightning rod political issues. I mean, yeah. I just, I, it's, it's hard. I'm not going to come up, come down hard one way or another. If this is like political pressure or just genuinely moderating something that maybe should have been more apolitical in the first place. Um, but you right. know, I think if this is, it's, it's tough for me because I don't really know legally how this works with like college credit, but it's still in K to 12. But I do think that right. there is a legitimate conversation to be had where this is not a required course. Nobody is compelled to take this course. And I am more in favor of a world where we say, you know, teenagers and their parents can decide whether or not this is an appropriate course for them. But I do think that having a dialogue about yeah. some stuff in there that's contentious 
it would help people decide whether or not that's a course they want to take. I don't know. Well, I think it, it. I think it is. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, it could probably. I guess there could be some schools that require an AP course, but I think in general it's optional. But and I still you would. You could also pick any other one theoretically. Right. So I do think it's optional. I do want to quote, I want to put an educator voice in here. The Guardian interviewed Melissa Tracy, a uh, Delaware teacher who is among the 60 chosen for the trial. So just to be clear, this is in the trial phase. So she said, uh, the course is no different than any other AP course she's taught. And quote, you could supplement your curriculum as needed with secondary sources, projects, et cetera. That's always been the case with AP since day one, since I started teaching AP in 2008. End quote. Um, she seems to be like, ah, like, I don't know what all this controversy is about. Let's just move on and teach this course. Uh, they quote a bunch of other people like David Blight at Yale, who's like the famed history professor, who is basically saying, hey, Black Lives Matter is relevant to the, the black struggle. We should be teaching it as yeah, a movement. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Like, yeah. I'm not, I certainly don't think that you should have an AP history course and not touch that, but. Right. Yeah. Well, and so. I mean, this stuff is tough because these are debates playing out today. Once you get to debate, that's and the, so much yeah. of this controversy is 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 around the contemporary unit, yeah. because I think like, thank God there wasn't too much controversy around a lot of the historical stuff, which has been like the seventeen seventy six versus sixteen nineteen all that we've covered that ad nauseum. But let's take a step back and say, all right, AP generally, as we sort of close this out. So, the advanced placement arose in the nineteen fifties in this effort to protect liberal education against what they viewed as specialized and technical education, which is weird, because I think, honestly, we're, we're heading in the opposite direction now, hopefully, in more technical and specialized education. That's what, when we talked about the populist data, that's what parents want. But so this is a decades-old program, and it's, it's administered by the College Board. AP brings in nearly half a billion dollars in revenue um, in every year. In 2020, it was nearly half a billion dollars. And... The College Board is this nonprofit institution, which is really, really lucrative for the people involved. High salaries, it brings in a lot of money. It's a gatekeeper because it administers the SAT as mm-hmm. well. And I think a lot of people are looking at this institution, and I'm generally pro standardized tests if anybody's listening to this. But I am also looking at the College Board and being like, who are these people and why do they get to make these decisions? Yeah. I mean, and also, I, I think that having some public dialogue about it is generally a positive. But unfortunately, we're just such like we're just so partisan that it's like there's no room for maybe there were things that were removed that should have been. Or maybe we can actually just talk about this and not be authoritarian one way or another. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's weird because we're. I, f- I feel like we're in a pendulum swing moment where there was very little conversation about what was going on in classrooms in general, and especially before the pandemic, and parents weren't really concerned or involved. And then it became such a partisan, like pendulum swing moment where now, like, I, it just feels like we're so hyper fixated on everything that teachers are saying and doing, and and legislating it. And I do think that that was a healthy correction from just how opaque education was in general and K to 12 education, and particularly because so many students go to government run schools. And that is something that taxpayers should have the right to have some transparency with. And I feel like this is part of the like pendulum swing, but maybe we'll end up in a healthier, more moderate place where we actually do can have civil and like level headed dialogue about curriculum and what's appropriate and let different areas have different standards. But yeah, I don't know. This is a tough one. One thing I would love to see is 
the birth of an alternative to AP and the college board as it relates to granting college credit. And mm-hmm. because it's not, I, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think there's any law that says AP is the only way you can gain college credit while you're in high school. So no, it's based on the, the your college. Like you can- They recognize it. I'm pretty yeah, they sure, recognize it as an well, accredited also, body. So, so my high school, this is an interesting anecdote, was like one of the schools that- um, like help develop AP as a concept. And yet we don't have AP courses at our school, which is right. pretty interesting. It was also like a really mm. great school and a boarding school and like has a ton of resources, but we didn't have AP courses. We had like, what we called them 500 level courses and it would be like the equivalent of an AP, but we weren't bound by what was mm. in that curriculum. And then at the end of the year, we could take AP tests still. You didn't have to take the actual um, curriculum. And then you could apply your AP scores if you got like a four or five or whatever the scale was. Mm -hmm. If you passed it, um, you could apply that as well. So there is room for flexibility in terms of like if a school wanted to teach a different version, but also teach with a test awareness, I think that would be an Mm -hmm. option. Well, oh, this reminds me, shout out to Republic Schools, my former institution. They've been piloting AP computer science uh, for a long time oh, now. We cool. we start teaching kids computer science in the fifth grade. And this was true when I left. I'm, I think it still may be true. Each year that we were teaching AP computer science, we had more kids taking and passing the AP computer science test uh, who were kids of color in Tennessee than every other school combined. Uh, hmm. that had kids of color passing AP computer science. So shout out to them. We have such a cool. good uh, computer science group. And then they branched out and were teaching Austin, Texas, and other school districts that were non-charter schools to do AP computer science and built a whole website around it. Some some of the best people I've ever worked with. They're really good. Well, okay, Ricky, we'll keep an eye on this. Uh, if you are one of those entrepreneurial folks who wants to start such thing, send us a voicemail. We would love to hear uh, you know, any alternative to this sort of monopoly that the College Board has over this. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the Lost Debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the town. Speaking of voicemails, Ricky, let's go to one from our listener. Hi, this is Diane from currently Virginia. Uh, I'm 68 years old. I wanted to let you know some thoughts about your multi-generational living. Uh, 40 to 60 years ago, at least in small towns and rural locations, really only nursing homes were available um, for elderly elderly people if they couldn't stay with family. Now nursing homes have changed a lot, and they're only for the quite ill. Um, and usually the residents there are incontinent, comma, often the trigger for families deciding they can no longer live independently or care for them in their homes. Now there is assisted living apartments and senior apartments with handicapped accessibility, which has made it much more likely that the elderly can age in place, comma, often in apartments designed for their use. All right. Thank you. Super informative. Yeah. And th- there does seem to be like more differentiation as she's describing now, like the birth of new c- types of communities. My grandma lives in one such community right now. That's not a nursing home, doesn't provide medical care. And then there's like the next like assisted living and then there's nursing home. So there definitely is hopefully like the growth of more differentiation now. And that that's a positive trend, I hope. 
Yeah, and more social awareness. I think I th- that was the kind of impetus and push towards that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a tough issue, but well. Uh, I think that's it, Ricky. Uh, thanks to our listeners. Thanks, Joe, for being there. Good luck tonight. Uh, Thank you, if guys. you're listening, I heard you guys might be sold out, Joe. That's what I heard. But if you're if not, Joe, where do they get we these are. tickets? No, oh, you're sold out. So sold never mind. Out, you but, can't come. Uh, right. Next show. Next show. All right. Well, are you going to be able to sneak Ricky in? I don't think she has a ticket. So what are you uh, going to do? Yeah, Ricky, I I might be able to sneak you in. I mean, if you know, I might know a guy oh, who knows thanks. a guy. So we'll see. Okay. All right. Well, good luck. We'll be back here next Tuesday. Thank you, our listeners. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Spread the word about the show. Uh, It makes a huge difference for us. We'll talk to you Tuesday. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell.